It's amazing what can happen in the space of a few days, isn't it? Uh, You might have great plans and then you get sick and all those plans come tumbling down. You might have given your sermon a certain title on Wednesday, as I wrote the Corrie News on Wednesday night after our winter word. Uh, I had originally called this early in the week, The Biggest Loser, and then I called it No Idol God, with a bit of a wordplay on the word idol, I-D-O-L or I-D-L-E. But then yesterday, after much mulling over these chapters and wrestling with the Lord and this message, I've called it The Problem of God. The Problem of God. Lots can change in just a few days. One day the Philistines, as we heard last week, have captured the ark. They're victorious. They're rejoicing. They've, they've defeated the Israelites. They've knocked off over 30,000 soldiers. And they've captured the ark of the covenant. And so in their joy, in their victory, they stick it in Dagon's temple on display like a trophy. Only three days later, they're absolutely terrified. And they are doing all they can do now to get rid of the ark. (laughs) One minute they're rejoicing, look at this, we've got them! And they stick it on the shelf. And next they're saying, what are we going to do with this thing? What are we going to do with the problem of God in our midst? A millennium or so later, a man is laid in a tomb, dead, having been crucified. They tried to get rid of the problem of God by killing him. Three days later, he rose from the grave. He's alive. And the problem of God has not gone away. What are we going to do with God, with the problem of God in our midst? That's the question the Philistines ask in chapter 5 and chapter 6 of 1 Samuel. It's the question the Israelites, God's own people, ask when the ark returns at the end of chapter 6. Who's able to stand before the Lord, this holy God? And actually deal with him in a similar way to the Philistines. And it's the question before the whole world today and before us, even as God's own people, the church. What do we do with the problem of God? He just doesn't go away. And for many in the world, and even in the church, to be honest, his presence sort of cramps our style a bit, doesn't it? If the Christians want to worship him, that's fine. Just be sure they keep it to themselves. They can do what they choose, just don't bring it in the public sphere and don't let that dictate what we do as a nation. Keep God away from us. Keep him in your churches on Sunday morning. And sadly, even many Christians think it's fine to come to church and worship God on Sunday, do enough to satisfy their own conscience and hopefully appease God, satisfy him too. But when it comes to the rest of my life, thank you. Sometimes I wish he'd just leave me alone. He cramps my style. If he's going to hang around, at least he could do something productive and bless me and give me good health and money and the wife or husband I want. Help me out of my troubles. Now that might be a bit too much of a caricature, but sadly, maybe it's not in some cases. And whatever the caricature, the question still remains, what are we to do? How do we live? How do we stand before the Lord, this holy God? For all the comic relief we might glean from these chapters of 1 Samuel, and I do think they're actually written in a humorous way, particularly the beginning of chapter 5, these are actually some sombre and sobering passages of Scripture. 
passages which deal with the, the seriousness of God, with the weighty matter of his glory. That word weighty or glory and weight, they're the same word in the Hebrew. I think we've heard that already in the last couple of weeks. And we could say this morning is actually a heavy word in more ways than one. It's a glorious word and it's a heavy word as we deal with the, and hear about the glory of God and his holiness. For the sake of time, we had Moira only read a couple of sections from chapters 5 and 6, uh, but there's three key scenes here, three scenes or episodes in the chapters of uh, 1 Samuel here. There's the Ark of God in the temple, the house of Dagon, which we did have read to us, where we see, if I can use some helpful alliteration from one commentator, Dale, Dale Ralph Davis, where we see the supremacy of Yahweh, the Lord, over Dagon and the Philistines. Then we have the Ark of God in the Philistine territory in the towns, where we see the severity of Yahweh. And then the Ark of God is returned to Israel, where we see the sanctity of Yahweh, his holiness. We have the supremacy, the severity and the sanctity of God, all of it to do with his glory and his holiness. So let me briefly go through each scene with some comment and then we'll consider the whole section, this story within the whole story of Samuel together. Chapter 5, as I said, begins with this almost slapstick comedy scene in the house of Dagon. And I do think it's meant to be humorous. But the writer uses that humour to teach us a lesson. To show that the Lord God of Israel is far from defeated in this whole escapade with the capture of the ark from last week now in Dagon Temple in Philistine Territory. The glory of God has departed from Israel. Ichabod, remember that? But he's far from defeated. Yahweh, or at least his ark, the ark of the covenant, God's promise to his people, God's presence represented there, is placed in Dagon's temple and it's put on a shelf right next to Dagon like a trophy. Dagon was a vegetation and grain deity, a god of the harvest. But overnight, Dagon falls down, topples off his, show, off his own shelf, face down, before the Ark of the Lord. Interesting term. Twice. That happens the next day as well. And in between, the Philistines have to put him back in his place. Did you pick up that phrase? They have to take their God and put him back in his place. There's Dagon, the great Philistine God who they've attributed their defeat over Yahweh and the Israelites to. And here he is lying face down in the dirt, prostrate before the Ark of the Lord, as if in worship. And he needs to be taken and put back in place. So impotent is this Philistine God. And not only does Dagon end up lying face down in the dirt before the Ark of the Lord, the second time he falls down, he loses his head and his hands in the process. It's like an ancient scene of Humpty Dumpty. And they're going to need far more than superglue to put him back together. Dagon is defeated, he's broken to pieces. And you probably can't remember it, but back in 1 Samuel 2, in Hannah's song, near the very end of it, verse 9, he will guard the feet of his faithful ones, but the wicked shall be cut off in darkness. That's what's happened to Dagon's head. Cut off in the darkness of his own house. Against them, sorry, the adversaries of the Lord shall be broken to pieces. Here's a fulfillment of that very word. 
Last week it looked like Yahweh, the God of Israel, was the biggest loser out of them all. But remember here in 1 Samuel, we heard it earlier, things are not always what they seem. Appearances can be very deceiving. Yahweh is far from the biggest loser here. Despite the fact that over 30,000 Israelites have died at the hands of the Philistines and the Ark of the Lord has been captured, the Lord has lost no weight at all. He has lost no glory in this so-called defeat. On the contrary, in his temple, in Dagon's temple, it was like a boxing fight between a heavyweight champ and a featherweight. And the Lord wins over Dagon completely, decisively. Dagon is the one who loses big time. And then the fight, so to speak, is taken outside of the ring into the Philistine towns, to the Philistines themselves. And I warned us, this is a heavy word, both figuratively and literally. Throughout chapter 5 and into chapter 6, three or four or more times in the next section, we read the hand of the Lord was heavy against the city, against the Philistines, or it was very heavy, it was hard. Maybe if you do this, he will lighten his hand against you. This is a heavy word and the Philistines get the full weight of it, the full weight of the glory and holiness of the Lord in their midst and remember that word heavy is the same word for glory this is the glory of God in judgment his severity against his enemies they are feeling the full weight of God's hand upon them and that weight we didn't have it all read for us but that weight comes to them in the form of tumors physical suffering and there's death And in their attempt to rid themselves of the problem of God, his presence, they send the ark away from town to town. They go from Ashdod, they send the ark to Gath. Get it away from us, send it off to some others. Now Gath's a town that's going to pop up on our radar again, isn't it? That's where Goliath comes from. And then that town is afflicted the same way and there's panic, there's tumours and there's more. So what do they do? They play hot potato with the ark and they send it off to Ekron. And finally they realise seven months they're afflicted like this and finally they realise the only way out of this predicament, the only solution to the problem of God is to get rid of him, to send him back where he came from, back to Israel. And so they seek the advice of the Philistine priests and the diviners and they organise to have the Ark of the Lord sent back and it's quite an elaborate scheme to make sure that the Ark is in fact the Lord's hand against them. Yeah, or maybe it's just a plague. Maybe it's just sickness that's come upon us. They're pretty sure it is the Lord, but they want to be absolutely sure. So first of all, they make golden images of tumours and mice, five of each, one for each of the Philistine lords and their towns. Maybe the plague, the tumours and the sickness upon them is, is brought about by plague, something like the bubonic plague and mice or rats are involved. But these moulded golden pieces are stowed with the ark as a guilt offering to give glory to the God of Israel. That's the word the Philistine priests use. They tell the Philistines to give glory to God. That is the only way they can deal with the problem of God, to give him glory. They couldn't just put him back in his place like they did with Dagon, their own God. They have to give him glory because Yahweh is the true living God. He's not some dead chunk of wood or stone or metal they can prop up on a shelf. 
He is in their midst in all his holiness and glory. And the only way they can make any idea of any solution is to give him glory and to send him back to Israel. And so they put him on a a cart, a new cart. They knew something special had to be done for this God. Not just something they've pulled out of the shed. And they put two milk cows, two milk cows who have got young calves who they need to feed for the calves' benefit, but also for the milk cows, they need milking. By their own nature, there is no chance they would walk away from their own young calves. But they do, lowing as they go all the way to Beth Shemesh, 12 kilometres or more. If you ever had to set up something to fail, the Philistine priests would be the right people to ask. They have set this up in such a way that there is no chance what they have wanted to happen would happen unless it's the Lord doing it. And it is. They go straight back home. They do not, not even back home. The cows have never been there. The ark goes straight back home. They do not turn to the left or the right. They are guided by God all the way, which tells the Philistines what? All of this has been the hand of the Lord upon us, heavy upon us. But now he's made his way home. Now he's gone. Maybe he will lighten his hand against us. And did you notice the lords of the Philistines, all five of them, made sure they went as far as they could to the very edge of the territory? There's no way they wanted that ark turning back. Not anytime soon. They wanted to make sure it got there. And then we come to the third scene where the ark's return. The people of Beth Shemesh see this cart coming. They might hear the cows lowing. They're reaping in the wheat harvest in their own valley. Maybe a subtle slap in the face to the grain grain god Dagon. And when they see the ark, they rejoice. He's back. The ark's returned. So they cut up the cart, they take the wood and they burn it and they take the cows and offer them as a burnt offering to the Lord. And the Levites take the ark. But even there in the midst of their celebration, in their worship and joy, there's a problem. Some of the men who are not Levites look upon the ark and they die, 70 of them. So that even in their rejoicing, the Lord's people acknowledge the Lord has struck them with a great blow. Now that wouldn't be the first time or the last that God's people have got a little overexcited in worship and forgotten to honour the Lord as holy, would it? It still happens today. The ark should have been covered according to the law. Look back in Numbers chapter 4. Before anyone came to carry it, only the priests were to look upon it, no one else. And the people of Beth Shemesh, they realise they too have a problem with God in their midst. And they actually deal with it the same way the Philistines did. What do they do? They call to the men of Kiriath-Jerim and saying, come, take the ark. (laughs) They want to pass it on as well. Maybe it's getting a little closer to its homeland. But they don't want to deal with the holiness of God in their midst. It's already knocked off 70 of their men. And they ask the question, who is able to stand before the Lord? This holy God. It's the right question to ask. We don't ask it enough today. 
that could almost be the catch cry for all these chapters together. Who can stand before this holy God? How can we dare, how can we bear to have him in our midst? That is the problem with everyone in these chapters. That is the problem they are all faced with. Whether it be a foreign god or a foreigner or one of his own beloved chosen people, how can anyone stand before this holy God? Remembering it was arrogance and superstition which brought about the capture of the ark in the first place. They tried to use him as a a good luck charm in their battle against the Philistines. And here now God's own people are still learning their lesson, how to approach their sovereign, supreme, sanctified, holy God. Eventually, it would seem, they did learn their lesson for a time. But it took some time, didn't it? Seven months, the ark's in the Philistine territory. 20 years, it stays here, and they lament for that time. And it cost them the loss of much life and the loss of much blessing. Next week, we'll see and hear just what they took from that lesson, how it did change them, at least for a time. But this morning, what can we take from this lesson? From what happened in Dagon's house, in the Philistine territory, and then in Israel itself. What do we learn of the supremacy and the severity and the sanctity of God? What are we to do with the problem of God? How can we stand in the presence of this holy God? Some of our young ones, 9s to 12s, you're in. Do you know the song, Our God is an Awesome God? Do you know that one? used to sing it when I was about your age, over and over again. Sort of one of those songs that never ends. But I don't think today that song really captures the nature of God when we say God is awesome. You know, you see something great, you watch YouTube, or you see something, that's awesome, that's cool, man. That's how we use the word now, isn't it? Same as the word awful. That's meant to be filled with awe. We're meant to have some awe about us when we see something awesome. And our God is an awesome God. So when we stand before him, there's meant to be some awe, some reverent awe in our hearts. Filled with awe. He is an awful God in that true sense of the word. The writer of Hebrews reminds us that. Let us offer to God acceptable worship with reverence and awe. Why? Because our God is a consuming fire. He's not awesome as in that's rad, man. No, he's awesome as in he's a consuming fire. He is holy. How can we stand before him? He demands respect and holy fear. If we are ever to look upon the Lord and stand before him, we are to be filled with awe. Even the Philistine lords recognised something of that, didn't they? They realised this was something to do with the glory of God and the kind of worship the living God demands. What was it they said with regards to the golden tumours and the mice and the guilt offerings they provided? Give glory to the God of Israel. Do that and perhaps, maybe, just maybe he will lighten his hand from off you and off your gods and your land. They recognise something of the holiness and weight of God in their midst. But I wonder if you've noticed, it's hard to notice something because it's missing, but there's something missing in these chapters. Or rather, there's someone missing 
in these chapters. Who's been the central figure in 1 Samuel so far? Who's been the one that's been raised up by the Lord? Samuel. Have you noticed he's not here? He's just become the key of the whole book, the end of chapter 3, and all of a sudden he drops off the scene. We hear at the end of chapter 3 that the Lord did not let any of his words fall to the ground. None of his words fall to the ground, and yet in the next three chapters we don't hear a single word from him. Not a squeak. There doesn't seem to be any words to fall to the ground. Except chapter 4, verse 1, from last week. The word of Samuel came to all Israel. Now, some commentators actually like that little part of chapter 4, verse 1, snuck back into chapter 3, just to to tidy up that nice and neatly. But we need to remember the headings and the numbers there are not actually part of the original inspired text. And I think it sits rightly at the beginning of chapter 4. Because I want to put it to us this morning that all these next three chapters are the word of Samuel not falling to the ground. If a tree falls in a forest and there's no one to hear it, does it make a sound? Yes, it does. If the word of God doesn't fall to the ground, will anybody hear it? It won't return empty. He's promised us that. I'm sure someone heard something go bump in the night when Dagon fell off his shelf. And you can imagine them in their groggy state the next night when they heard it again. Oh no, Dagon, not again. But even though Samuel hasn't said much at all in these chapters, I actually think this is the very word of Samuel, the word of God, not falling to the ground. What is that word? We need to go back a little further, back to chapters 2 and 3. Can you remember the word concerning Eli and his household because of the corruption of his sons in the temple and with the the women at the temple and getting the fat out of the sacrifices for themselves? And there's this word of judgment from a man of God in chapter 2. He's unnamed. And then Samuel is given that vision in the night and the Lord speaks to him and confirms that same word to Eli. That's, That's Samuel's word so far. That's the only word we've heard from Samuel. What that man of God said is going to happen to you, Eli. And that word was an action against Eli and his sons, a word of judgment, an action of judgment against Hophni and Phinehas. They would die that same day. But see, that act of judgment itself was a sign to Eli that his word was going to be fulfilled. Eli was told, your household is going to be cut off. And as a sign to show you this is the word of the Lord, your two sons will die on the same day. So it was a word of judgment to his sons, but it was also a sign that God's word would be fulfilled. How was it Hophni and Phinehas died? It was when the ark was brought onto the battlefield, Hophni and Phinehas accompanying it there. They wouldn't have been there otherwise. And in the midst of that word that the man of God said to Eli, verse 17, sorry, verse 30 of chapter 20, chapter 2, get my numbers and words right, chapter 2, verse 30, thus says the Lord, far be it from me, those who honour me I will honour, those who despise me shall be lightly esteemed. 
Now, the ESV has actually made that sound a little too nice, I think. Lightly esteemed in the New King James or the New RSV is despised or treated with contempt. Those who despise me will be treated with disdain. They will be accursed. These chapters 4, 5, 6, where we, not, where we hear not a peep from Samuel, are in fact the very word of Samuel, the word of God, not falling to the, to the ground. And everyone who hears it, Samuel said their ears, or God said to Samuel, their ears will tingle. And tingle they did. And I wonder even today if Samuel's word still has not fallen to the ground but is speaking to us. And it should make our ears tingle and make us respond to the Lord of glory in all his holiness that we would only stand before him with reverent fear and awe. So sadly, many of our own homes, many churches, many nations of the world who were once Christian could today, like Phineas's orphan son, be given the name Ichabod. The glory of the Lord has departed. There's no honour, there's no awe, there's no respect. There's no reverence. How many of the churches that Paul wrote to in the New Testament still stand as a living church today? How many of the churches in the book of Revelation that John wrote to and the warning is there, unless you repent, I'll take away your land? Not many. I saw the picture of one of them last week, just a mound covered in grass. Ancient gone the glory of the Lord has departed how many of our nations Germany heart of the reformation the beginning of the reformation Switzerland where Calvin served look up the figures just over if we're lucky 50% of those nations now identify as Christian and it's a pretty broad definition that's included in that number our own nation Australia last census did you hear the news for the first time, less than half of us identify as Christian. And again, it's a very broad definition. Of that half, less than 20% go to church regularly. And regularly is once a month at the most. But also more grim, I think, is those who identify as having no religious affiliation. Those who are just ignoring God. Send him away. Now it's almost a quarter of the Swiss population, whereas 50 years ago it was 1%. That's a big shift. Who now think there's nothing to do with God in my life at all. God has got nothing to do with it. In Australia, almost 40% of us Aussies claim to have no religious affiliation. What do we do with the problem of God? We just ignore him. Pretend he's not there. And that number has almost doubled in the last 10 years. Is the glory of the Lord departing from our nation? In one sense, yes. In another sense, not at all. Not at all. I know there are only numbers and statistics, but they do paint a pretty grim picture. And yet at the same time, it does not mean that God is any less present or active among us. In fact, those grim figures are a sign of God's faithfulness to his word. If you despise me, 
I will only lightly esteem you. You will be disdained. And in all of that, God is not the biggest loser. We are. That's what Israel had to learn. That's what the Philistines learned. But did you notice the five Philistine lords who finally had it confirmed it was the Lord against them, this living God of the Israelites? They didn't go join in worship. They went back to their own hometown. And it's what we need to learn. Even on this side of the cross of Christ, it's the same Lord God who reigns sovereignly and rules in his righteousness and glory and holiness. He doesn't have a character change between the Old Testament and you, does he? Something has happened, but his character has not changed. As we read in Romans 1, God's wrath is being revealed from heaven against all the ungodliness and unrighteousness, against all who suppress the truth against all who say there is no God, no religious affiliation. God's wrath is actually being revealed. His hand is heavy upon them. It's exactly what Romans 1 says, isn't it? God hands us over to our sin, to our idolatry, to our worship of self and money and sex and whatever else. And if you read through Romans 1, as God hands us over three times, three or four times, his hand's heavy against the Philistines, In Romans, three times God gives us up or hands over those who refuse to honour him as God. He hands us over to impurity and dishonouring of our bodies, to dishonourable passions and unnatural relations, homosexuality, and to a debased mind. We stop thinking properly. Futility in our thinking. And filled with all manner of unrighteousness, not only practising these things, but approving of them. I was astounded last week. Did you hear the news? The Greens in SA are pushing together with the Australian Human Rights Commission to recommend raising the criminal age from 10 to 14. wasn't that that I was astounded at. Wait for it. The reason they give, they want to... We cannot put 10-year-olds who do something wrong into prison. And I think there's probably some better things we can do with our young people who break the law. But their reasons, because the prepubescent mind is not yet fully formed... These young people cannot rightly distinguish from right and wrong, from good and evil. And they cite the psychological damage detention does to children. The Commission's director, the ABC reports, saying, children of that age do not have the cognitive skills of reasoning and impulse control. We have to look at the physiology of children's brains here, she said. Children aged between 10 and 14 do not have a fully developed brain. Sorry, 9s to 12s. They're not able to make logical decisions. They're not able to think through the impact of proposed offending. Therefore, the law cannot find them criminally responsible. And you can sign a petition if you'd like, look it up online, and you can say, yes, we need to raise that age. But whatever you think of the incarceration of our children and how we should manage those who break the law, how is it that in one breath we can argue they are unable to fully comprehend their actions and know right from wrong, and yet at the same time allow those same prepubescent boys and girls to decide their gender? and go through actions and make decisions, physical, hormonal, some of them irreversible. One minute we're saying they cannot choose between right and wrong, the next minute we're giving them the ability and the authority to do that. God's handed us over to a debased mind. Um, Thinking is futile. We cannot see the inconsistency of our own arguments as a nation. Like the very idols we worship, read Isaiah, we are blind, deaf and dumb. 
And that's only one arena where we see this futility of thinking playing out. God's glory has not departed. His hand is heavy upon us. And we need his mercy. We need to return to him in reverent awe, repentance and faith. We will not get rid of the problem of God by ignoring him. A tick on the census box is not going to get rid of the problem of God, is it? The only way to solve that problem, and I don't think it is a problem, it's a good thing that God's hand will not allow sin to go unpunished. The only way to, for the, any solution, though, is to hear God's word and to heed God's word, to repent and turn back to him as he asks with a whole heart, mind and soul. As individuals, as a church, as the church, as a nation, if we would. Because in that word, in his word that he's given to us, the written word, and what did Joshua say? He said, loves it, sweeter than honey. And in the living word of Jesus Christ, God has both revealed and provided the solution to the problem, hasn't he? In his own son. God himself has provided a way for sinners like you and me to live with a holy God and stand before him. Not just stand before him, to to draw near to him. Who can stand before this Lord, this holy God? Well, by the grace of God, all who come to him in faith through Jesus Christ can. We do. And it's wonderful. Because Jesus ever lives to intercede for us. He stands between us and the holy God. And he's dealt with our sin. He's our mediator, our great high priest. That's the promise of the new covenant. For all who come to him by faith, they come to the mercy seat of the cross of Christ. And in him we can actually draw near to the throne of grace. With confidence, the writer of Hebrews tells us, with confidence. There's not much confidence in these chapters, is there? We can come to him with confidence to find mercy and grace in our time of need. Later on he says, in him we draw near with a true heart in full assurance of faith, but only in Christ, by his blood, because our hearts have been sprinkled clean from an evil conscience and our bodies washed with pure water. It's the only way we can stand before the Lord is in his Son. Just as the the writer of Hebrews reminds us exactly what we're reminded in these chapters of Samuel. We are to offer him acceptable worship, not just any kind of worship that suits us, acceptable worship. Romans 12, that's our living bodies, our whole bodies as a living sacrifice, holy and pleasing to him with reverence and awe because he is a consuming fire. The Lord is holy. He doesn't take sin lightly. And neither should we. He alone is God, a jealous God. He won't take our divided, mixed worship. A little bit of God on Sunday and a little bit of this during the week. No way. He won't excuse divided love or loyalty. He wants our whole heart, our whole mind, our whole body, our whole soul. And in Jesus Christ, he has taken it all. Jesus has taken care of all that we could not stand before God with. He has offered the perfect living sacrifice in his own body. He's lived the perfect life. He stands before the Father in full obedience and faith. 
Not just so that we can rock up to God willy-nilly, old chummy, hey God, how are you going today? No, but so that we can draw near with reverence and awe in Jesus Christ, standing before God, our Heavenly Father. We, in Jesus, can call upon the one who judges all the earth. We can call upon him as Father, the one who loves us and in his love has made the way for us to draw near to him. Dagon was treated with the company of the Ark of God for three days. Each night, what did he do? He fell down, face down before the Lord, as though dead. And if it hasn't already, I mentioned it earlier, but it should remind us and point us forward to the time when another person was put in a dark place for three days. They thought he was dead. Well, he was. He was dead, wasn't he? Crucified on a cross. They thought they'd dealt with the problem of God. He was defeated. But there in the tomb and on the third day when he rose, what looked like defeat, what looked like the final departure of God and his glory, was in fact a glorious victory. A glorious victory and the defeat of his enemies. Do you know that great verse in Colossians? It speaks about the cross. In him we were this, circumcised, we've been washed, we've been baptised. And there on the cross he cancelled the record of debt, nailing it to the cross, disarming the rulers and authorities. I just see this picture of Dagon disarmed in his temple. His hands fell off. And there's Christ on the cross disarming all rulers and authority, every opposition against God, putting them to open shame, triumphing over evil. And he rose from the grave. No one needed to put Jesus back on his shelf. No one needed to set him up again. Now he came out living, alive, risen Lord, and now ascended at the right hand of God. And a few weeks later, there was a bunch of Pharisees asking the same question we've heard here. What are we going to do with these Christians that keep talking about this guy, Jesus, and the resurrection? What are we going to do with the problem of God? To which one wise one says, well, don't deal with it at all. Just ignore it. Because if it is of God, it won't go away, whatever you do. And if it isn't, it will just peter out. 2,000 years later, it hasn't gone away, has it? Hasn't petered out. Still we are to draw near to him, but only... Through Jesus Christ. Even Mary was told, wasn't she, don't cling to me, I have not yet ascended to the Father. We can't just go up to him and... No, it's in Jesus that we have access to the Father. Unfettered access like Israel never knew, but only ever in Christ, through Christ, through the cross, reminding us that we need to be careful, we need to be awe-filled as we approach God, filled with awe, But all of that should remind us and teach us of the amazing, mighty work that Jesus has done for us. What it has taken for us to be able to draw near to God with full assurance and with a confidence of faith. C.S. Lewis describes Aslan, the great lion, doesn't he? He's not a tame lion. Not one you can just go up to and give a pat. But through the lion of Judah as Jesus is called in Revelation, we can draw near and stand before the Holy Lord God with confidence and full assurance of faith. And in him we can call upon the judge of all the earth 
as Father. That's what his love has done for us in his Son. And we have all of that given to us by the Spirit. Let's pray. Gracious Father, we so often hear of your mercy and your grace and your love, and so we should, rightly so. But we're reminded this morning with this heavy word of your glory and your holiness that whilst we're invited, we're called and encouraged to draw near to you and you will draw near to us. We can only do that because you have actually sent your Son that he would wash us clean so that we might stand before you, our holy God. And as we do, we stand in Christ with him as our mediator, our great high priest. But Lord, with what joy... What wonder and what awe that we have access to you. You call us and love us as your children. We can call you our Father. And yet, Father, we ask that you would go on reminding us that you are holy. This is no small matter. This is serious. And it can be serious and full of joy at the same time. This gospel is no light thing, but a great wonder of your mercy and your love and your grace to us in your Son, in and through whose name we pray. Amen.